Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Sticker shock. Gas prices have soared to a new all-time high. How will the Bank of Canada's interest rate hike impact you? Canada is promising more sanctions against Russia. Learn the latest battleground tactics being employed by Russian and Ukrainian military forces. A rocket is going to slam into the moon on Friday morning. And would you pay more money for a premium movie ticket? The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Yes, sticker shock, more pain at the pump as gas prices have soared to a new all-time high. We need to do something about them. They're, they just keep going higher and higher and higher. And, and I mean, how much more of this are we going to be able to take, right? It's, it's too much. I'm considering moving out of the lower mainland because um, I can't afford to live here anymore. I love what it has to offer, but in terms of how how things are increasing, I can't sustain it. A couple of drivers from Vancouver, B.C. who are not too happy about the latest price spike at the pump. We're feeling it here in Hamilton and in the GTHA. Gas prices jumping about seven cents a liter overnight to an average of a buck sixty-eight. It's not done there, though. They're expected to rise by another three cents at midnight tonight. A dollar seventy-one is bad. Not as bad as the dollar ninety-three in Metro Vancouver. That is the highest in North America. Wow. Rory Johnston is our next guest. He's the founder of the Commodity Context Newsletter and managing director at Toronto-based investment firm Price Street and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Rory. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks for coming on. Um we need something or someone to blame because, you know, <laughs> more than ever, we're dreading that trip to the gas station. What what are some of the factors that have contributed to this week's multiple price spikes? I mean, if we want to point to a single person uh, to blame for the current kind of momentum in uh, gas prices, the answer is very clearly Vladimir Putin and his invasion of Ukraine which, you know, the gas prices and oil prices had been heading higher already on a historic rally for the last 18 months, even before Russia and Ukraine started showing up in the headlines. We were already hitting all-time gas price highs in Canada. But obviously, so we already had a really, really tight market. And then with everything that's happening in Russia and Ukraine now, that tightness just went into absolute overdrive. And oil prices on a global level are over $110 a barrel, back well into their kind of heady uh, high period of the kind of, you know, basically the highest period since the 2008 kind of mega price spike before the financial crisis. So we're in very, very rare territory. So, if, oh, yeah, please continue. I was going to say, so how do, we, how do we bring those oil prices down? How do we get gas prices down? I mean, there's really a couple options, and none of them are really great. Um, <laughs> so there could, be a, there could be a recession. Um, I mean, you know... One of, you know, all of these things are going to be d- determined by supply and demand. So if we can't get supply to catch up with what demand is um, and prices keep rising higher and higher, and even some of the, some of the callers you were, you were uh, playing earlier were talking about how people are considering cutting back uh, because of all of these high prices. And, and when you start cutting back, that's how recessions start. So I think that's one thing we're watching is potential for demand contraction at a global level. Um, the other thing could be that we, we, we have a happy-ish resolution to, you know, what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. You know, that's still a possibility. It feels like an ever fainter one, given how horrible things are going in Eastern Europe right now. But that's always a possibility. Just to put in perspective, Russia is, depending on the day, the second or third largest uh, oil producer in the world. 
It exports about 5% of global supplies. Um, and we already were really, really tight, as I was saying, by about 2 million barrels a day undersupplied all of last year. We even lost, you know, you know, 40% of Russian exports. That would double the, the deficit that the market was already facing that brought us from negative prices in 2020 all the way up to almost $100 before the Russia stuff even started. So, you know, that's, that's the big thing that's driving prices right now. What I think that the healthiest way for these prices to come down and the way that the market should solve itself right now, but doesn't seem to be getting there in a hurry, is for U.S. shale producers to finally start ramping up investment again. Historically, particularly with prices well below where they are right now, U.S. shale producers would have been growing much, much faster than they are right now. But they're far more hesitant to do that because, you know, in the past, they destroyed a lot of capital. They wasted a lot of money growing and they kept crashing the oil price and they're afraid of doing it again. So we're caught in a bit of this catch-22 right now of prices being extremely high. And the only types of producers that can respond quick enough uh, to kind of um, fill that void aren't doing so. So the, the, last, the last best shot that uh, governments have been trying is, is tapping into their strategic petroleum reserves. And releasing million bar- millions and millions of barrels, 60 million barrels to be precise, um, of these kind of strategic stockpiles to try and lower the price. But obviously nothing is working right now and prices continue to hit kind of decade high levels. Well, I filled up my tank yesterday, filled up a jerry can as well. That's only going to last so long and I'll be paying, you know, uh, through the nose as we all will. Rory, really appreciate the time and breaking down the factors impacting our gas prices today. Thanks for having me. That's Rory Johnston, founder of the Commodity Context Newsletter, Managing Director at the Toronto-based investment firm Price Street. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. All that money, money, money flying out of our bank accounts. Welcome back. This is Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. Thanks for taking some time out of your busy morning to spend it with us. Greatly appreciated. Yeah, higher gas prices, inflation going up, and finally, as expected, the Bank of Canada raising its uh, key interest rate. What does that mean for you? We're going to break it on down with the help from Paul Anadiak, Vice President, Licensed Insolvency Trustee at BDO Debt Solutions. Paul, good morning. How are you? Morning, Rick. I'm doing great. It's a nice sunny morning, which is always great to start your day off with. No doubt about it. Uh, interest rates, uh, speaking of things going up, interest rates on the rise in Canada. Bank of Canada raising its key lending rate a quarter point to 0.5%. What does this mean for Canadians, especially during these times of record inflation? Well, Rick, it was uh, it was expected. We knew it was coming. We've talked about it for a number of months, and uh, Bank of Canada made the move. And now it's going to cost Canadians to borrow m- more, and it's going to uh, cost more to service their debt. Really, who is impacted by this? It's those that are carrying variable rate debts, such as mortgage, uh, home equity lines of credit, lines of credit, and it's going to cost you more on your monthly payments. Now, to give you an idea of uh, how it's going to cost someone with a mortgage, we already know that the average home price in Canada is about seven hundred and forty. which is shocking to begin enough. But if you've already uh, bought a home at that amount, signed up for a five-year mortgage at 1.25% with a 10% down payment, you're looking at a payment of roughly about $2,696 a month. With just a quarter percent increase, it is going to increase your mortgage payment by $80 a month 
or $960 per year. Now, for those that have a fixed rate mortgage, you know, you have some breathing room because you won't have to worry about it till it's going to be renewed. But we know that there's going to be potentially more interest rate increases this year. So those that are on a fixed rate that's going to be maturing, they might want to take a look at their mortgage. And we know that Canadians are already stressed on a monthly basis with inflation. We've seen it. So $80 a month is going to have a big impact for a lot of individuals. And what you're laying out, that that only applies to mortgage payments. There's a whole lot more that goes with it. Exactly. Those that have their lines of credit that are based on prime rate, that's going to be going up immediately. So, you you know, you can take a look at your online banking. You can see what your new payment is going to be, but you're really going to feel the pinch of the rising rates right now. And if people are relying on their lines of credit to live, because some people have had to do that during COVID, what you're going to find is that it's going to be more difficult to be paying that back. And again, as I mentioned, we're looking at a couple more interest rate increases during the year. So now Now's the time to prepare. If you're just concerned about this one interest rate increase, you need to start looking at what your options are going to be down the road in case we have two or three increases this year. And, you know, I mentioned gas prices, I mentioned inflation, obviously interest rates going up. There are other things we're paying more for, including food and uh, just living and vehicles. Everything seems to be going the wrong way, Paul. Everything seems to be going the wrong way. Well, the whole idea of Bank of Canada increasing interest rates is it's really tried to curb inflation. Now, of course, that is going to take some time, and experts are saying that just one increase won't do it. So we're expected to continue to see those increasing prices in the short term, uh, whether it's at the grocery store, which has gone up 6.5%. Gas, as you mentioned, it's gone up 31% this year. And, of course, with the conflict around the world, we're going to see some gas prices increasing for the short term. So Canadians should be prepared to pay a lot more at the pumps and also in at their banks. Paul Anadiak is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Paul is the Vice President and Licensed Insolvency Trustee at BDO Debt Solutions. Um, on the flip side of this, we're paying more and more and more for virtually everything, but we're not getting paid more and more as employees, as workers. That's right. And and we're going to have a double whammy that's going to be happening with a lot of individuals. Some individuals have uh, actually uh, benefited during COVID from working from home. They've been able to reduce uh, some of their expenses, such as uh, gas and dining out. But now, as the offices are opening up right now, we're going to have a lot of employees that are going to be heading back to the office. So they're already going to have those increased costs. So their wages have not increased. So you know what? It's going to be, as I mentioned, a double whammy for Canadians that are heading back in the office, that expenses all of a sudden are going to be soaring again. Latest uh, BDO affordability <laughs> index show that 7 in 10 say that uh, all of this has had a negative impact on their standard of living, which is not surprising at all. But you mentioned it, you know, this interest rate hike is expected to be the first of several this year and probably even more next year. We know that inflation is expected to continue to rise for the foreseeable future. It's at a 30-year high already. What's your advice for our audience who is managing all of these added costs? Well, we've talked on various shows that people need to review their budgets. And that's the first thing I'm going to, I'm going to tell people to do and, and give advice to Canadians. Uh, 
Previously, we were asking Canadians to be proactively looking at their budget. Now we're actually in a reactive kind of situation where Canadians are going to have to take a look at their expenses to see where they're going to be able to cut back, see where they're going to be able to afford these extra funds that they're going to have to pay in interest and groceries and gas as well. So the budget is key. However, you should also take a look at what your outstanding debt is right now. You know, are you managing it? Can you actually free up some savings there? Can you free up, uh, uh, for example, consult? validation loan that's going to help you in the short term here, or even get a, a debt strategy repayment plan in place. You know, we know that the high interest rates are going to be in the short term. It's not going to be forever. Same with COVID, same with inflation. So now might be the perfect time to plan for your future. We have another minute with Paul Anadiak, Vice President, Licensed Insolvency Trustee at BDO Debt Solutions. Uh, there, there's lots of options out there. Bankruptcy, consumer proposal, you mentioned debt management being another. What final advice can you share with our audience in tackling all this mounting uh, debts that that may that they may be staring at well we know that the surveys have been showing over and over again that the financial strain is taking a toll on many canadians uh, the interest rate hike and the ones that are to come on top of record inflation we're experiencing it's going to add a, a lot of stress and a lot of canadians are going to be pushed to their financial tipping point if you're worried about how to manage right now if you're feeling overwhelmed reach out to an expert such a licensed insolvency trustee so we can discuss what your options are as a professionals we can help you plan and we can sit down with you at a free no obligation obligation meeting and discuss what your future holds for you. And again, you can call 1-855-BDO-DEBT. BDO.DebtSolutions.ca is the website. Lots of great info on there as well. Paul, really appreciate the time today. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. Have a good morning. You too. That's Paul Anadiak, Vice President, Licensed Insolvency Trustee at BDO Debt Solutions. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Christopher Freeland hinting that more sanctions against Russia are on the way. What impact will they have? Well, let's ask our next guest. Dane Rollins is a professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs and Director of the Infrastructure Protection and International Security Program at Carleton University. Professor Rollins, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Fine. How are you? I'm good. Have these sanctions been as crippling against Russia as hoped? I I think they're more expensive than people thought we would go, at least as quickly. So yes, I think they're they're having an effect. Uh, They're having an effect on the general population there, and they're having an effect on the targeted elite groups in in Russia as well. So yeah, I think they're, they're biting, I think, more than people maybe thought that they would. And certainly more than the Russians thought they would as well, I think. Ms. Freeland says more sanctions against Russia are on the horizon, saying, quote, uh, they'll be coming in the coming days. What more can be done? I think there's two directions that this will take. So one is a continuation of the kind of targeted sanctions that we've seen for a long period of time. So we had over 100 Russians and and, uh, Belarusians and others targeted in previous sanctions uh, as individuals and also entities like corporations. Uh, So those kinds of sanctions on their financial uh, ability to interact with Western uh, financial systems and banks will will be extended, I think. So they'll see we'll see a lot more people targeted and named specifically under those provisions. Uh, We may see a little bit more clarification on terms of in terms of things that we would be able to import from Russia. 
uh, and things that we're able to export. So they already talked about the cancellation uh, of permits for exporting to Russia. We may see even further clarification and expansion of the list of things that we can't sell and potentially uh, things that we can't buy from them as well. Ms. Freeland also says the upcoming sanctions uh, will target institutions and individuals enabling Vladimir Putin. Is that being done to limit the impact on the Russian population? Yeah, so several years ago, uh, you know, it's been it's been kind of the, the received wisdom for the last couple of decades that you try to avoid broad-based sanctions. And the reason for that was we saw serious humanitarian effects of sanctions, especially in poor countries that were being targeted. Uh, so in Iraq, for example, there were complaints about the humanitarian effects of, of sanctions on, on that government uh, previously. So there was a move away from broad-based sanctions to targeting specific individuals and specific corporate entities. And that's what we've been relying on for the past several decades as a way of, of imposing sanctions and signaling uh, discontent with a, with a government's policy. So we're going to certainly see those extended in this case. And that is an attempt to try to, to focus the cost on the people who are actually making decisions that, that are being objected to. At the same time, I, I think the realization is that in Russia, uh, the government relies so much on, for example, the hydrocarbon sector uh, that is going to inevitably have to be targeted and then will inevitably in broader based sanctions have uh, effects on on uh, individual Russians at the, at the just like regular Russian uh, citizens. And so there's an attempt to balance that uh, and target the, the upper echelon, but uh, it's hard to do at least effectively in terms of really changing their policy. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Dane Rollins, professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs and director of the Infrastructure Protection and International Security Program at Carleton University. How long can Russia's economy survive with these sanctions in place? Well, sanctions work uh, at a variety of time levels. So the immediate shock is going to be important and will be really difficult to, to get around because you haven't got the time to, to rearrange your supply chains. And we've seen how even in, in the COVID-19 pandemic, supply chain interruption can be uh, can impose serious costs on, on individuals and really affect their welfare. Uh, so in the immediate term, it's really difficult to find alternative ways of, of bringing in goods or selling goods or, or arranging your finances. And, you know, to an extent, Russia can rely on expanding ties with China to get around these. But in the short term, this is going to be very painful. In the longer term, the longer sanctions are in place, the more economies tend to adjust and become less dependent on those that are, that are targeting them. And in the case of Russia, again, they have alternatives that they can turn to with China and others who aren't participating in sanctions. And so over the long term, they'll be able to adjust to this. It'll still be painful. It'll be less desirable than where they would want to be. But uh, it's, we'll see the, the major effect, I think, in the short term, and then um, we'll see it dissipate over time if it lasts for a long period of time. And I think the Russians are hoping that it won't. I think their initial plan was a quick victory in Ukraine and everybody goes back home and the sanctions disappear. I'm, I'm not sure that that's really in the cards right now. I think if Ukraine is, is, is kept in a subservient state to Russia, uh, either through a puppet government or through, through conquest, effectively, uh, then, then the sanctions will remain in place for a long period of time. Professor Rollins, thank you very much for your time today and enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're going to get a glimpse of the battleground tactics being employed by Russian and Ukrainian military forces as both nations fight for control 
in Ukraine. Dennis Thompson is a retired Major General with the Canadian Army, former commander of NATO's Task Force Kandahar, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Major General Thompson. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm not too bad. We're more than a week into this conflict now. From a battlefield perspective, what has been your main takeaways? Well, I think the first thing we should do is recap what the Russian intent was and what's actually transpired to date and what we can expect in the coming days, weeks, and months. So first off, uh, as you know, they unleashed a massive cyber attack prior to the attack, and there's been a comprehensive disinformation campaign as well as the insertion of Russian special forces. All of this has been done to disrupt, confuse, and sabotage uh, the Ukrainian forces. Uh, that was followed, as we know, about a week ago, exactly a week ago, by ballistic and cruise missile attacks, fighter-bomber attacks, and an initial effort to destroy Ukraine's uh, air defense radars and their missile batteries, as well as their air forces, and to capture or destroy airports. And you do that in, in a military campaign, largely to establish air dominance, because once you have air dominance, your air forces have uh, the freedom of maneuver in order to support the ground forces. It's then that you typically introduce your ground forces, as we've seen in, for instance, the first Gulf War and, uh, and, and other wars since that time. What would should follow with the ground forces is an attempt to surround pockets of resistance, including major urban centers, and then force them to capitulate. And I think what uh, Putin's real objective was to, well, we know, was to install a puppet regime, co-opt the local forces, and avoid a slow, brutal fight in built-up areas. And that's not what happened. That might have been their intent, but it's not what happened. Interestingly, from a military standpoint, they did not wait for the air campaign to bite, and they launched their armored forces immediately, or simultaneously, if you will, with the air forces. Uh, as you probably heard, and the Pentagon has certainly reported that the Russians have yet to establish air superiority, even after seven days, and that the morale of their soldiers is low in many cases, uh, some units which have surrendered, which is quite surprising. Uh, in their attempt to encircle cities, they have taken today uh, Maharpal in, in the south, uh, just north of Crimea. They're, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Curzon, just north of Crimea, and they're moving on Maripol, which would give them a land bridge between Crimea and, uh, and the Donbass region. Um, but I think what they really want to avoid is this ugly uh, fighting in the cities, and they're trying to avoid that by laying siege to the men by indiscriminately shelling them. So it's going to be quite a different fight between Kherson, which has a population of 300,000, and Kiev, which has a population of 2.8 million. And I think that's going to be the place to watch. So that's where we stand right now. An impressive defense by, the, by Ukraine's military to date, and obviously a population that's been totally mobilized against the Russian incursion. Many are uh, raising concerns now about Russia's uh, use of thermobaric weapons. Have these so-called vacuum bombs been used before? Are they are they legal, so to speak, in a uh, a warfare setting? Well, they're legal if you don't sign on to the agreement. And the way they function is uh, they, they are what what are called fuel air munitions. And so the the uh, rocket is launched. It release, releases a fuel air mixture, as the name implies. And then uh, once it's been dispersed, which happens in, uh, in in seconds or less than a second, then that fuel air uh, mixture is ignited, which of course uh, burns all the oxygen and uh, and causes human death. Um, 
the reason it's interesting or useful, if you will, in a uh, military context is because it allows you to to penetrate bunkers, which you otherwise would have have to get into by high explosives. But in this particular uh, context, if it's used against civilians, of course, it'll kill them in their underground shelters, which is clearly uh, contrary to the laws of armed conflict. Uh, but like I said, the Russians haven't signed on to the, uh, the convention that governs thermobaric munitions. Got another couple minutes with uh, Dennis Thompson, Major General, retired with the Canadian armies, who talk about some of the battleground tactics that are being employed and deployed in Ukraine. Uh, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, told a Geneva disarmament meeting that Ukraine has been seeking to acquire nuclear weapons. They have this technology from the Soviet days, and they have the means of launching them. Should we be worried about that? Because, I mean, Russia's been the only nation to play the nuclear card. I don't. Well, first of all, I don't believe that uh, that Ukraine has or has any intent to acquire nuclear uh, weapons, and they're certainly not in a position to do it now that their country's uh, on the back foot, so to speak. And, and of course, Russians playing as many cards as they can because they've been surprised by the level of, well, the, the level of resistance that they've experienced against the U- Ukraine military. And I just would add that if this, which it probably will, devolves into a an insurgency. It, they do not have the numbers to secure the entire country, which is why they would have wanted initially to co-opt the local forces so that they could provide the security for the local population if they managed to install a puppet regime, none of which has happened. But nuclear weapons, that's just a card or that's just a threat to deter NATO from trying to establish things like a no-fly zone. Well said, Major General Thompson. Thank you very much for the time today. My pleasure, and uh, we'll keep watching this because it's uh, critical to the future of our collective security. Thank you. Very much so. Dennis Thompson, retired Major General, Canadian Army, former commander of NATO's Task Force Kandahar, giving us a glimpse of some of the tactics that are being employed by uh, Russian and Ukrainian military forces. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, a rocket is expected to crash into the moon just before 7.30 tomorrow morning, and the impact is going to create a little more than a scar on the lunar surface. Should we be worried about this latest lunar impact? And will this heighten the conversation about environmentalism in space? Here to chat about it is Dr. Elena Hyde, the director of the Allen I. Carswell Observatory in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University. Good morning, Dr. Hyde. How are you today? Uh, Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. I'm doing great. So as the story goes, a man who tracks objects in space says a four-ton rocket booster, apparently from a Chinese spacecraft, is uh, set to crash into the moon, becoming the first known space junk to unintentionally smash onto the lunar surface. Is this cause for concern? Well, it's it's an interesting point. It, it is, as you mentioned, the first unintentional uh, collision on the moon. Uh, but it's interesting to note that we have had, you know, collisions on the moon before uh, intentionally. <laughs> so <laughs> um, we have, of course, measured uh, moon stakes, even the or moon quakes. Sorry, the Apollo uh, back in the 1950s, um, there were early intentional collisions uh, where we put seismometers on the moon and that was like sort of Apollo era um, and of course we have you know there's actually a, a real ESA planetary defense office <laughs> which tries to monitor the uh, um, you know possible collisions and they're now looking because of this to 
maybe go back a little further into space to try to monitor also for uh, collisions that are, will impact the moon. And it's interesting you you mentioned the the origin of this uh, particular rocket. I believe is is still sort of being um, uh, debated mm-hmm. because nobody really wants to take credit for it. <laughs> uh, you don't want to be in charge of the first accidental collision on the moon. Yeah. Um, so it's a really interesting um, uh, you know thing that will happen, but we won't be able to see it. So uh, I would just like to call that out to everybody. It is going to be, it looks like, on the far side of the moon, um, which means that we cannot see it because the moon is in something called synchronous rotation. It always keeps the same face towards Earth. So it rotates and it turns um, such that as it goes around Earth, it always rotates that little bit so that it keeps its same face uh, towards us. And this will be on the lunar far side of the equator, um, currently estimated to within, I believe, a few seconds of 1225 UTC. (laughs) So uh, we know when it will impact, but we're not going to be able to see it with earthbound telescopes. So this piece of space junk is expected to create a 65 foot long crater on the moon. It's about the size of a tractor trailer. Um, But this is not the first man-made item to end up on the moon. NASA apparently has an inventory of more than 800 items that have been left on the moon, including astronaut poop, vomit bags, (laughs) cameras, golf balls, shoes, and $2 bills. Now, The question I have is, if humans one day want to live on the moon, we can't make a mess of it, can we? No, exactly. And that is one of the big questions um, at the moment is, how are we regulating this, right? Space law is something that is just starting to take off. And a lot of people are realizing that all of this, uh, you know, activity in outer space is really picking up and we're going to have to come to some agreement about how we're going to behave both in earth orbit uh, low earth orbit high earth orbit on the moon on mars Um, how are we going to actually regulate ourselves so that we're not just filling up everything uh, with space junk and what are we going to do about um you know are, how are we going as humans to make some sort of agreement about what kind of permanent changes we're allowed to make on the face of the moon if we create you know settlements or mining on the earth side face that's something that's going to literally affect all of humanity everyone on earth will be able to see it forever and i i mean with any group of people you're certainly never going to get agreements right and if you try to have that across all of humanity uh, you're not going to get permission from from all of them and um, i think that's probably one of the reasons that neither china nor spacex uh, want to take credit for this particular collision because it could have been um you know if it had had a little bit of a different trajectory we might have ended up with a permanent change to the earth facing side of the moon Mm. um so who does what and what are the limits uh that is the ongoing question we're just about out of time have about a minute or so with uh, dr elena hyde the director of the alan i carswell observatory at uh, york university the impending crash making a lot of people maybe on earth a little nervous when it comes to space junk potentially crashing into things on this planet what's the likelihood of that whether it lands in a heavily populated area i don't know hits a house hits a car hits someone god forbid what's the likelihood of that Yeah, well, it is becoming more likely, and I know you don't have much time left, but we have had a few near misses, of course, with the literally thousands of new satellites going up. Uh, Starlink is now over 2,000 just by itself. Um, The 
chance of collisions in orbit is higher and Starlink satellites are designed to burn up in the atmosphere but if they collide with something that isn't it could fall down so space junk is a real um, a real ongoing uh, problem and that is something that we will have to take in ca uh, into account that said if something does come down it is still much more likely to land in the ocean than on you but it's something that we have to really con seriously consider so i would actually say just on this topic it would be really good to maybe end with a quote that i saw just last year from an astronomer um hildy nelson who's at the university of toronto was talking about um you know colonization on uh the moon in space on mars and said it's basically like you know if you're going to go out there um maybe trying to make it being part of more being part of you know the moon rather than making the moon part of us or mars or outer space how do we do this in a little bit more of a responsible way and so i really liked that uh that kind of uh, sentiment and i think that that might help guide us a little bit in our um our our goal of trying to come up with some regulations that would make a bit 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 more sense on this it's a good call uh otherwise you can invest in a uh, high quality hard hatch that might keep you safe as well dr <laughs> hyde thank you very much for the time and enjoy the rest of your day thank you very much bye dr elena hyde from york universities we all get set for tomorrow's um spacecraft or a rocket space junk crash into the moon. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Well, that treat might cost you a little bit more. At least the treat that is being presented on the silver screen at some AMC theaters in the U.S. because they're testing out, as of this weekend, variable pricing. Uh, the new movie, The Batman, premieres this weekend. And so some theaters are going to be charging more money for you to go watch that particular movie. So the question is, would you pay more money for a premium movie ticket? It's the focus of our Twitter poll question today at AM 900 CHML. Chris Jan Selovitz is the National Online Supervisor with Entertainment at Global News and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. So would you pay a little more money to watch a premium movie like The Batman? You know, I think it depends. Um, again, like if you're a huge superhero fan, if you you know are just absolutely salivating to see Batman, you know, maybe then you would pay an extra few dollars to go see. Um, what I think we're going to see is two very uh, uh, separate schools of people on this subject. I think people uh, will either be more than willing to pay extra for a movie, or they will absolutely not on their lives pay extra to go see a movie. Because going to see a movie is expensive enough when you throw in the popcorn, the beverages, uh, you know, gas to and from with gas prices these days. Uh, the the premium pricing isn't exorbitant. It's a dollar fifty more, at least what AMC is doing with this film in L.A. So a buck fifty more to uh, a ticket to go see another movie at the same time in the same venue. Is this going to create, you think, more competition in Hollywood to create better movies? I think so. And I think also uh, what people are maybe overlooking is, you know, if you're paying more for a movie, say it's a huge blockbuster, say it's like Spider-Man or Batman, um, who's to say that some of that additional money won't trickle down and um, help the studio produce more indie film or things that maybe aren't as huge uh, on, on an audience scale? Um, so that's a possibility. And then I also have been, uh, since um, this topic was brought up, I was thinking, 
you know, we pay extra for concert seats. When we go to a, a concert venue, we want to see a musical act, and we pay extra for the seats that are front and center. We pay seats, uh, pay extra for the box seats, um, things like that. So why not at a movie, um, you know, for the better seats or for the better movies, you get, you know, a little bit more bang for your buck. You are adding an extra two bucks, three bucks, um, and then you have, uh, you know, a bigger movie that has a higher budget and bigger stars, you know. So it kind of, in a way, uh, weirdly makes sense. I can see the premium seating angle being adopted by many movie theaters because, yeah, as you, as you mentioned, you go to the theater, you go to a sporting event, you go to a concert, you're going to pay more for the better seats. Uh, it, it leads me to believe that movie theaters will have to greatly improve the in-theater experience. You know what? They will. I don't know what they're going to do to <laughs> silence uh, people on their phones or looking at their phones or or chatting throughout the whole movie. But, uh, yeah, absolutely, I think that what we're going to see here maybe is... Uh, if Canadian theaters decide to adopt this as well, we're going to see kind of a shift in the way uh, we go to movies. Um, I, I don't know if it's necessarily bad. Uh, the industry has been, obviously, as you know, um, it's been just decimated with COVID, um, by COVID. Uh, people haven't been going to movies at all. Uh, theaters have been shuttered. So, you know, studios really need to think of ways to, you know, increase profits and get people back in theaters. So I, I don't know if it's going to work necessarily. Um, but if you look at it that way, too, um, you know, they need to make money as well. No doubt about it. Uh, there was a recent study conducted that showed that 8% of pre-pandemic moviegoers may never return to theaters. And now if you're asking those people and, you know, everyone else to pay a little bit more to go see a movie, do, do you get the sense that this might be a chance for uh, places like Netflix, uh, Prime Video, Crave, Disney Plus, to become even more popular because people can stay in their homes, they can go to the washroom when they want, they don't have to drive anywhere. Uh, absolutely, I think that that's a huge problem for for movie theaters and studios, and we're even seeing it now. Like, I, I mean, I personally will way rather prefer to be at home um, and just be on my couch and you know be able to pause it when I want and and you know talk to my family members if I want to. Um, you know, that's uh, exactly the problem. So unless you're a cinephile, um, you know, uh, you're, you're probably going to want to stay home. So that, that is an issue. Yeah, no doubt about it. Chris, really appreciate the time and your insight on this topic. Enjoy the rest of the day. No problem. You too. Chris Jan Selovitz is a national online supervisor with entertainment with Global News, adding his thoughts to this premium movie ticket plan that AMC Theatres is launching down in the U.S. It'll likely be in Canada soon. I am sure. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.